Welcome to the Data Brilliant Podcast with me, Joe Dos Santos, Chief Data Officer at Click. In this series, we explore how data is reshaping and redesigning the future of our business and personal worlds. From business leaders to educators to public figures, we'll be joined by experts who will give us a fresh perspective on the world through data. At Click, we've always believed in the power of data and analytics to create social good. In 2019, we launched the company's corporate responsibility platform, Click.org, dedicated to the pressing issues of climate change and human relief. The mission of Click.org is to drive positive change at the intersection of business, society, and our environment, so everyone everywhere can enjoy a healthy and prosperous future. Click works with NGOs and charitable institutions to bring analytics to the fight in our most challenging global issues. In order to explore some of the ways in which data can make an impact to humanity, my colleague, Julie Kay, who leads Click's sustainability efforts, will be joining me to host Data Brilliant, speaking with the world's leading experts and renowned leaders to share some remarkable stories of those who are on the front lines of some of the world's biggest challenges. In a short time, the world will be coming together to explore solutions to tackle climate change at COP27 in Egypt, So, in this episode, Julie will be speaking to an expert on one of the world's most pressing climate change issues, water. Julie, over to you. Thanks, Joe. I'm excited to be part of Data Brilliant with you. Now to today's guest. We're joined by J. Carl Ganter, former vice chairman of the World Economic Forum Global Agenda Council on Water Security and founder of two companies dedicated to supporting global water resourcing issues. He's also an award-winning photojournalist focused on drawing attention to climate change through his work. Welcome to Data Brilliant, Carl. Hey, Julie. It's great to be with you. Um, you We've worked together for so long and trying to solve some of these grand challenges that you touched on. Exactly. We've worked on many projects together over the years, as you've said, and your work and thoughtful approach has always inspired me. So can you start by telling us a bit about your background and what inspired you to focus on fighting climate change and in particular, shining a light on and developing solutions for water resourcing issues around the world? Yeah, it's, um, I mean, it really focus on, on the one thing that, that flows through everything, and that is, and that's water. You know, water's the connecting thread um, of all these issues that we talked about, food, energy, climate, even justice. Um, and so I think we all have our water epiphany. Um, my background is in photojournalism as well as investigative reporting. And I got a call, kind of the, the ultimate call at school for, a, for an undergrad, from Rolling Stone magazine, and it wasn't to go photograph a uh, you know a glamorous celebrity, but it was to go photograph one of the ten worst places on the planet. And I'm thinking, wow, what you know, what what long distance will that be? Well, it's actually the southern tip of Lake Michigan, down where the steel mills are, down near Gary, Indiana, and East Chicago. And so I flew in a helicopter uh, in the Gary Police Department helicopter over these steel mills that had been built, you know, 100 years ago and had continually been dumping um, their waste and chemicals into Lake Michigan. And this was my lake. I couldn't believe that one of the 10 worst places on the planet was my own lake, Lake Michigan, and where, you know, 20% of the world's surface fresh water is in the Great Lakes. So... One, epiphany, light bulb, how could that be happening? And, and what's behind that? 
And and the other piece was then Time Magazine sent me to Asia for about four months and covering infectious diseases. <laughs> a little theme here. I got all the stories nobody else wanted to do. But they were really the, the basis for, for really my life focus at the moment. And at the core of these diseases, at the base of, of civilization, was really access or lack of access to safe drinking water and sanitation. So that's that's my kind of epiphany journey. Great journalism, reporting from the front lines, and, and Vector Center hopefully providing some of that that course correction for companies and, and governments, and then designing water's future, which, um, you know, looking forward, how do we activate young people and all of us um, to really imagine a future of clean, fresh water, you know, in a changing climate? Yeah, thank you for sharing that with us, Carl. That's amazing. So as we think of sustainability, uh, data is often used as a way of framing the problem, uh, along with the great storytelling like you just mentioned. And we need to convince everyone from individuals to big businesses to join the fight. How do we know which information to believe? How do we pull the data together to compel people to not only be interested and aware but to become part of the solution. Yeah, that's that's a great question, and and you know one is that you know first we have to show relevancy, and that's um, so whether you're a uh, whether you're my neighbor or whether you're a, a multinational company, um, why do these issues matter? And you know data can show that one is that say water and these these other issues are are risks you know to your bottom line. Um, or to your customers, or to your supply chains, um, and and then also you know it's it's uh, you know right at the right at the core. So why to join the fight? We need to see ourselves in the picture, and and so that's why data plays such a such a role. Um, but trust, I think, is that is also that key issue. Um, how do we know what information to believe? And you know, one data can be. Uh, can be wrong, okay? So that that means that we need to have testing and test the data, um, understand where it comes from, understand the sources. It can also be misleading, and if it's not presented in a in a way that you know intentionally or unintentionally um, is is really revealing, and that's where I think the context part is really important. Um, and even starting at the front, um, you know, one, what questions do we want to answer. And then how do we actually ground truth that data? And I have some fun stories how we've done that, too. And so let's talk for a second with regards to kind of the importance of water, right? We all know and use water daily in our homes and and in our lives. And yet we're hearing more and more about the impacts of climate change in the news and, and what needs to be done. But there's no, always not there's not much reference with regards to how that connects to water. And unfortunately, the topic of climate change can be very confusing. And it's especially confusing in understanding how we need to solve the issues around climate change. And I've heard you use a metaphor linking water to climate change that is very powerful. And uh, I think I heard this metaphor years ago, and it stuck with me. And uh, can you sh- can you share this metaphor with our listeners to make that connection? And uh, 
how you came to see it this way. Yeah, and I, I think you know, water. As I mentioned, it's it's what it's it's what flows through all of us. We take it for granted. And when we talk about climate change, you know, climate change can be very ethereal. It can be boiled boiled down to, uh, you know, CO two. Okay, great. What is that? If if you don't remember your chemistry class, and how does that affect me? But if you think about climate change as as a as a shark, right, as this kind of swimming, looming shadow, you can think about water as the teeth. Um, and so, water is really how we feel climate change. And, you know, as the climate changes, we're seeing, we're already seeing, and this year particularly, we're seeing stronger storms, we're seeing more rainfall, and we're seeing stronger droughts, uh, more intense droughts, the American West, India, China. Um, and so really, water is how we feel climate change. And the good news for that is that it's also how we can both adapt to climate change and how we can help mitigate climate change. Um, because some simple things like, you know, the less water we use, say, taking a shorter shower, the secret that secret to that is you're saving water, but you're actually saving a lot of energy because all the water upstream that it took to generate the power to push the water to your home to actually heat that water. That's all weight. That's all energy. So the more savings you have, uh, the more energy you save the less energy we're generating and potentially the less, um, you know, less outputs that are affecting the climate. Um, and then the part of the resiliency. So, you know, looking at investing in not just hard infrastructure like pipes and pumps and sewers and wells and things, but also natural infrastructure. You know, how do we rebuild uh, using water as the path? Um, how do we rebuild and build uh, more resilient natural systems to absorb those droughts and those floods? So that's that's the way I look at this is is that yes if if climate's the shark water's the teeth but there are it's also one of the major solutions paths. So I know we've talked about how the solutions that we design for the future need to involve everyone. And we've hosted a few hackathons together. Um, who had, you know, participants from government, from academia, from NGOs, also the private sector. Um, and those hackathons have centered on the use of data to, to build solutions. So we, we all know that data has a, has a role to play, and that role can go beyond raising awareness but can you describe how data and, and technology can truly be part of the solution to drive more tangible outcomes when it comes to water and the crisis that we face? Yeah, absolutely. And and I think there's a there's a really important piece here, and it's kind of a it's that you know what we need to do is is think about oftentimes we talk about awareness, and uh, that's great. Good for you. Okay, awareness. So how do we actually take awareness to action? And then how do we course correct that? And how do we get beyond, I hear the word actionable a lot. Well, actionable, we could just be kind of sitting around and talking and saying, boy, aren't we being actionable? Um, or we can run out the door and actually fix things. And, and so what the data does is, you know, hopefully the storytelling captures heart and soul and context, but then the data actually motivates your your course, your direction. It's like your compass. 
And you know, the more that we uh, adjust and listen and 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 look at the data as our map, so to speak, um, that's the way that we can set our course. And the exciting thing in 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 working with Click and working with with so many of these different data pieces that are coming in is that you know it's getting faster and faster, but the more context and the more course corrections we can make rather than waiting for you know an 18 month analytical process we can course correct in near real time and we can start to understand when people aren't understanding an issue we can start to understand and maybe see that you know a drought may be affecting our community or our bottom line um, or uh, you know, the, the future of a, a particular region and start to become uh, much more resilient. And then we can continually measure that. And so the data starts to create a feedback loop. And I liken it to flying a little airplane. And flying a little airplane, you have all sorts of you know storms and, and headwinds and tailwinds. And that data, you know, that dashboard, that system, it's like a radar system. And a radar system is basically a way of listening, you know, pinging out and pinging back and providing that course correction and, in a sense, that situational awareness so that really we can, you know, I talked about actionable. Um, I always call people in the field who are doing real work. We call them the action figures. So they're the ones taking that that data who are inspired by the story and, and getting stuff done. Yeah, exactly. And it's and, and your work is, is truly inspiring because what's unique about it is the organizations that that you work with um, in taking this data-driven approach, I liken it much to a, a private company, let's say, that's using data to kind of make decisions with regards to their daily operations, right? And you don't oftentimes see that in kind of the world in which we work, which is in, you know, the work of, of solving global challenges, but yet what you've been able to do at Circle of Blue and Vector Center is leverage data to solve these challenges much in the same way that a private sector business might look at data to solve a business challenge. I think we have, you know, um, a great opportunity um, in working with organizations like yours to bring data to the forefront to solve our biggest challenges. And I wonder if you could give us an example of, you know, any particular innovation that you've seen that um, data has played a key role in addressing some type of resource issue or uh, challenge with regards to uh, access to clean water, for example. Yeah, let me give an example of, of really swinging high and then and hitting a home run. And this is the level... Um, I think of impact that we need to be striving for. And that is, you know, at, at what we do is, is oftentimes we'll start at Circle of Blue, we start with a big question. And uh, I think that's also really important when we're talking about data, especially today, is what are the questions we really need to answer? Because otherwise we can get drowned in the data, right? We can have too much data. Um, and then we become, in a sense, <laughs> data stuck or almost catatonic. Does China, this is a simple question we asked, does China have enough water to mine and process coal? Okay, coal being at the core of China's, in a sense, entire, you know, entire growth because it, it, 
really, it literally powers China, that and some hydropower, but it really is water underscoring all of that. So does China have enough water to mine and process coal at current rates? Okay. Simple question, right? So we deployed teams. We deployed data, data researchers, reporters, and photographers across China. And we partnered with several universities in China. And one is we went to the statistics bureaus um, to get river flows, to get actual groundwater data, to get those sources. Then we went to the mines and the mills and the power plants. And yes, we had access. We had unprecedented access. Um, and so we then also contextualized that data. I stayed with a shepherd family in Inner Mongolia near the mines, you know, who told me that their wells were going dry. And so that that mine and that power plant were literally draining the water table, which would turn um, those grasslands into uh, really into sand swales, which is, um, you know, devastating for life, culture and the community. And so we start, we put together this really complex story, but into a simple narrative data-based because we literally had captured as much data as we possibly could that China didn't have enough water to mine and process coal and cool its power plants at current rates. That literally rippled around the world. Um, the Chinese government uh, invited us to present to the water minister. So with data in front of the water minister, um, he was empowered. The water minister felt empowered. Great, great story. Nice pictures, right? But here's the data. We don't have enough water in these locations. So he was empowered then to approach the infrastructure minister and the energy minister. Long story short, that literally made it into China's next five-year plan and also made it into the U.S.-China climate agreement, which was the precursor to the Paris climate agreement. So we had, based on data, we had two of the six major points in that agreement, energy and water and risk. And that had not been in the agreement or in the discussions before. So data-driven, driving all the way up to policy and literally nudging China much more toward a renewable energy path that didn't use water in particularly scarce regions. That's phenomenal and a great example, Carl, and kind of Circle of Blue's work in working to design the, the future of water. Um, and and honestly, the, the role that data played in that initiative, but it wasn't just data alone, like you said. Uh, it was with along with that contextual information that really got the government to respond. Uh, together, we worked on the No Water Project um, mm -hmm. a few yes. years back, along with the Columbia University Water Center, taking data from um, several government agencies here in the United States and combining that in one place so you could see a 360-degree view on the availability, the use, and even the kind of quality of water. And that was really quite innovative when we built that no-water dashboard. And, uh, and I think still serves as a model by which how we can get access to data, bring it to the forefront, go beyond awareness and help organizations like the private sector that you mentioned, like the NGOs, who are working on the front lines with access to information so they can fulfill their mission, right? Yeah. Um, so kind of also kind of diving into now a little bit about uh, some of the work in the private sector. Um, as our listeners know, 
The value of effective modeling is not only to identify what is happening in real time, but to also predict potential future issues. And I think this is where your work at the Vector Center comes in, in working with private industry. Um, what is the value of using data to predict future issues in the context of global resourcing around water? Yeah, it's. Um, I'll go back to my little uh, my little airplane model here, because um, uh, you know there's really no doubt that the world's changing, um, and and it's already changed. Um, but I think you know in the in the private and public sector, we need to realize that the world is it's already different today than it was yesterday. Um, and what can we really learn from that? And I think you know many ways we need to listen better, and and that's to ourselves and to our planet. And we need to course correct faster. So our mission with Vector Center is to be able to um, is to be able to help uh, understand, listen better, make sense of the complex complexities, and then provide um, that intelligence to course correct. And we do that uh, through kind of a neat. I think it's a really interesting way in, uh, of listening. And this is a combination of kind of my experience and and what we've done together. And that is perception versus reality. So what do people believe? Um, where are they now? Uh, meaning sentiment-wise, what are they talking about? Um, are they happy? Are they sad? Are they worried about something? Um, and then that actual reality, that trusted data. And what we found is that that dissonance, that difference between the two, perception versus reality, is actually a predictor of potential disruptions. The farther apart they are, the bigger chance you might have of something like uh, an Arab Spring uh, or a Syria, because the perception is, oh, I've got plenty of water, and the actual reality is the wells are going dry. And that's when you can have some really dramatic, dramatic upsets. Um, and so if we can actually align those and spot those, then we can, in a sense, fly a much uh, smoother course. Um, so that's 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 where we've gone with Vector Center. Um, the more data we are getting, and the more data that's becoming available with newer satellites, um, we're using AI. We can become much more predictive, um, so we can plot that course and be less um, less reactive and more, um, in a sense, more prepared um, and uh, and resilient. So, are you seeing now then? Uh kind of a an increase, if you will, in the quality of data that you're able to use um, in some of this analysis and or predictive modeling? I know when we uh, worked on the No Water Project, yeah. right, we spent half <laughs> our time, I think, cleansing that data that, that we oh, were pulling gosh. down from, uh, from public websites. Um, but now, as you mentioned, kind of with AI and, and getting uh, data actually from satellite imagery and so forth, are you, are you hopeful that the quality of data is going to increase and that will then lead to, you know, um, better outcomes? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Again, it comes back to, you know, what questions do we want to answer? Because we could, uh, I was working on one project with uh, uh, the U.S. Army, actually, and, and the approach was, well, we'll pull in all the data and we'll we'll sort it out with, with AI. Um, it's a little easier if you start with what do you need to know. 
Um, but yes, the, the data is actually really exciting um, because of the satellite data and the acuity there, the idea of the Internet of Things, uh, remote sensors um, on everything from pipes to rivers. Um, NASA is launching a new satellite in December um, that will monitor river flows and be uh, uh, provide a level of accuracy of water supplies we've never seen in our you know ever, um, and so you know this ability to like I, I keep coming back to to listen better to ourselves um, is uh, is getting better and better, um, but also again it comes back to it comes back to the context. And it does come back to making sure that that that, that the data is ground truthed. Um, you know, making sure that that if we have a sensor measuring drought, that somebody's nearby sprinkler um, isn't hitting that sensor now and then and and throwing it off, um, because a bad data point can also provide. It, it's like it's like driving down the road and having an old version of of Google Maps, and it takes you to a you know it takes you to a dead end. Um, or the road's not finished yet. And so, um, you know, that, those are the risks. But I, I think that, you know, we're in live course correction mode. And so what is really exciting is that we're just seeing the ability to visualize and contextualize data like never before, and even spot bad data, you know, before we end up down that dead, that dead end. Right. Which I'm sure all of our listeners uh, can commiserate with. Uh, that's for certain. So it's exciting to hear that there are some advances taking place that will enable our ability to leverage accurate, detailed, real-time data to kind of design the solutions that we need for the future. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And the real-time data, too, is it's, that's really exciting. Um and, and again, it's also, it has to be, you'd have to have that spidey sense, you know, is it, is it taking me down the right road? So Carl, you run three organizations that all use data in remarkable ways. Has this influx of available data changed what you need from your employees or your staffing requirements? Let's say in terms of data literacy skills and, or not only your employees, but also your clients and and the partners that you work with. Yeah, absolutely. Um, from the even the client part is can sometimes um, you know we th we think or we hear that boy just throw some AI at that and and we'll have we'll have our answers you know like a a, a magic cartoon <laughs> putting in you know a pile of data one side and a little card spits out an answer on the other side but you know AI isn't isn't born smart um, you have to train it and. You know, we're finding we're finding that uh, um, you know we do we need more data researchers. Uh, we need um, more analysts. We also find the most important thing is we need people that work on both the left and the right side of the brain. Um, like I was saying, being able to visualize the context and being able to step up and say, "Are we asking the right question?" Um, as they're say building a dashboard. Um, whether it's for no water or whether it's for a, you know, a client that's looking at, at measuring water risk in, say, South Africa. Um, does this make sense? And so, you know, I think the, the number one uh, thing that, that I really look for in, in team members and, and people that we're working with, too, is a level of curiosity. Um, what if we asked this question or what if we looked at this data set um, and what if we compared this data set to this data set. 
um, because you know we're in a, we're in an area where we have we can put together so many toys and tools. Um, it's uh, it's daunting in one sense, but in the other sense, it's like I want somebody to say, "Well, why not? Let's test it." Yeah, I love that word curiosity. I speak frequently to uh, university students, and uh, and you know tell them that one of the biggest values that they bring to the table in their future role at a company is their curiosity. Why can't it be done this way? Why are you doing it this way that you've done it for 20 years, right? And that question alone will help us lead to the solutions that we need for the future. Uh, Do you see storytelling as a skill that more data scientists need to develop in order to contextualize their analysis to make it resonate more with their audience. Oh, absolutely. I think that uh, really on the data side, I think data engineers, data designers, data capture, I think that our data folks need to be better storytellers. And we have to make the data come alive. And so if you're literally on the data side, you can't hide in a spreadsheet anymore. Um, You have to make those cells, you have to make those numbers really, really multidimensional. And you have to tell a story because we're not just doing metrics here. You know, we are setting a course. We're setting maps. We're setting agendas. We're setting paths forward. Um, We're looking to avoid risks. We're looking to grow businesses. That all is driven by the story that the data can tell. So as we think about kind of the use of data and storytelling uh, towards building solutions for the future, how important are building data literacy skills across all organizations? And in fact, Carl, as you just mentioned, data scientists need should become better storytellers, but there's probably also the inverse is true. Data, traditional storytellers um, should also increase their data literacy skills. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think data literacy plays such an important part in our in our society, in our future, and defining our future, in all the way from you know the base, basic education. Um, we're at a point in in history now, and the tools are, are at our fingertips. That this isn't just uh, uh, you know these aren't hidden processes and you know secret magical tools uh, that can only be applied by somebody with massive amounts of training. Um, you know, organizations really, uh, companies and governments and NGOs really ought to be training their staff in in at least the top levels of data literacy. Um, what again? What are the questions you can ask? But also, uh, what are the answers we can find so that those who are, have deeper skills um, can have better direction uh, and support? So the data literacy, even just at the top, kind of that flag on top. Um, is really really important. Again, coming back to back to curiosity, and what is it that we can find out? Um, and then, of course, going deeper, much deeper into the training, uh, because we have so many different tools today, um, and that's it's really exciting when you're able to able to tie them together. So, Carl, you play an important role um, in leading many important conversations at the highest level around global water issues, even at organizations such as the World Economic Forum. Um, As we wrap up this conversation, I wondered whether you could give us your key thoughts on how data can impact the world as we know it 
and uh, and what impact it will have on our future. Wow. Um, well, I'm a, I'm a visual guy, as you probably figured out uh, uh, with my f- uh, photography background. But, um, you know, I think it's back to data in context um, is the most important thing. And when I see numbers, when I see data, when I see, you know, an awesome uh, dashboard or something we've built together, um, I actually I think of um, I think of the pictures and the people behind them. Um, if I see a, a dot on a map, um, I think of who lives there. Um, you know, what's their data story? Because we all have a data story, right? And and what's their context? And you know, I think of um, I think of say a family in the Tar Desert near the border of Pakistan that I've stayed with in India, and walked with their their daughters to go get water uh, at sunrise. And then I think of maybe a shepherd in Saudi Arabia that I photographed, or an Aboriginal elder in the Australian outback without any any power. Um, we sat under the stars and had kangaroo stew, quite literally, as the um, as the Darling River flowed past. And that Darling River was is the her data point going back forty thousand years to her creation and her dream time. So when I think of these data points, and it's a Darling River, we can measure from satellites from the sky or measurements in the river. Um, to her and to me, I think of sitting out under the stars and a pathway kind of back through history. So, you know, I think for me, making the data really come alive is the most exciting. And those faces behind the numbers, um, because when we make decisions, we often make decisions from the heart. Um but when we see that data, um, we can make those decisions much more clearly. Well, Carl, this has been fantastic. Um, thank you for sharing your experience and connecting us all to water, not only in our daily lives, but obviously across the globe. How can our listeners find out more about you and your work? Um, well, you can uh, tune into, take a look at Circle of Blue. Uh, that's at circleofblue.org. And then there's Vector Center, and that's uh, vector-center.com. And obviously both on the web. And then um, follow All Things Water. Um, become literate and uh, get involved in the conversation um, because it's data-driven and we all have a water story. Well, thank you, Carl. It's been a pleasure. Oh, it's great fun. Great fun talking, Julie. Thank you. Carl teaches us that we need people with a deep curiosity to use data to develop the solutions for the future. But curiosity isn't the only skill we need. We need data storytellers to use the right tools to help set that data in context and show the real-life impact to governments and global organizations. Only by doing this can we encourage them to take the issue of water resourcing from awareness and into action. Think about the importance of having and acting on good data in your life and in your organization to discover how you can solve your most complex data challenges with a real-time analytics data pipeline that generates better insights and more value from your data. Visit click.com. That's Q-L-I-K dot com.